turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16. I'll be not reading at the moment, but we will work through every verse throughout this sermon of Acts, chapter 16, verses 11 through 29. Let's pray. Father, help us see, help us see the beauty of your handiwork, your salvation applied personally to various types of sinners. May we revel in our own salvation for those of us who are Christians. May you cause us to delight, to worship, to enjoy this great salvation all the more because of this passage this morning. To the glory of our Savior Jesus. Amen. All right, so what I hope for us to see in this passage today is that God is sovereign and he is active in planting churches. That God is the one who guides the faithfulness of his servants to preach the message of Jesus and then he gathers in the elect. And even more than that, we see in this passage, he gathers in totally different kinds of people. And he brings them into the body, together, around Christ. In this passage, God's providential hand leads these four men, or maybe even more who were helping them, first to a rich, sophisticated businesswoman, then to a slave girl who was demonized, who was a fortune teller, and that gets Paul and Silas thrown into jail so that God could save a Roman soldier who is in charge of the city jail, both him and his family coming to Jesus. And that's the beginning of the church plant in the city of Philippi. And Luke, he will actually stay there as a pastor for a while as the team will move on from Philippi. Their gospel message in the salvation of these people did not change. They did not manipulate the message in order to reach the particular target group of very wealthy, sophisticated businesswomen. And then change it again in order to reach slaves. Or change it again in order to reach rough Roman soldiers. It was the one gospel that saves very different people. And it brings them all to the one Lord Jesus. Now, what we see here, if you think about, like in our day and age, and geopolitics, 
Or you think about the Emperor Claudius at this time and the vast Roman Empire and the thousands upon thousands of government officials having to run this whole thing. What we read here can feel extremely insignificant. And yet, when these guys got on a ship and went over to Macedonia and walked 10 miles to Philippi, what is happening here is the first church planted in Europe. And on that continent, we know over the next few thousand years, the world was changed by the church in Europe. So let's get a feel first for this city of Philippi. Here's Paul and Silas. They're on their or Paul's second missionary journey. It's about A.D. 49. They visited first church after church in the large provinces of Syria, in Cilicia, and then in Galatia, where they picked up Luke and Timothy to join their missionary team. And then they planned to go into the region of Asia to preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit would not allow them. And then they wanted to go into Bithynia and preach, and he wouldn't allow them. And then... Finally, the Lord gave them a vision which directed them, go over, get on a ship, and go to the region of Macedonia. And they walk 10 miles and they get to Philippi. Now this city, if you remember Alexander the Great trying to conquer the world a few hundred years before in the 300s BC, his dad was Philip of Macedon. 400 years before what we're reading here, he annexed this particular city and he renamed it after himself, Philip. Philip Pie, city of Philip. Then, almost 100 years before this, in 42 B.C., this city of Philippi was made a Roman colony. It's like a miniature Rome with all the rights as Romans had. It reflected Roman civilization and culture politically and socially and architecturally. And it came with Roman citizenship, which was very significant as opposed to a non-citizen. It was a city outside of Italy that had all the rights of all the cities in Italy. So let's pick up in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, a little island. And then the following day to Neapolis, now they're on the mainland. And from there, we went, walked to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. And so here they are, and they're, they're seeking to preach to Jews first, as was their custom, and they discovered that in Philippi, this Roman colony, there was no synagogue. You needed ten men as a minimum in order to form a synagogue. Evidently, they did not have that. And so they thought maybe there, there are some Jews or 
Maybe even God-fearers are down by the river on the Sabbath praying, and we pick up in verse 13. And so on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. All right, so they had a plan. Let's go see if we can find some people who know the scriptures. Down by the river, it's a Sabbath. But then God directed their paths because nothing happens by chance. God is sovereignly working behind the scenes. These guys don't know it, but from before the very foundation of the world, God had planned to bring this woman, Lydia, to the Lord Jesus through the gospel being told to her. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so here's Lydia. She, she originally comes from the city of Thyatira, which is in Asia. It was a town very well known for expensive purple cloth. Emperors and Roman senators and other very wealthy persons wore purple garments as a status symbol. It was the BMW of the day. Now it doesn't say here, but Lydia was probably a widow who went to Philippi now to do business there. And the term that she is a worshiper of God means that she was a Gentile woman who had come to believe in the God of the Jews, of the Hebrew Scripture, without fully converting and becoming a Jew. Now think about it. She came from a city in Asia. And right before this, Luke lets us know Paul... Barnabas and the gang intended to go into Asia to preach the gospel and the Lord would not let them do it. And in God's providence, Lydia, who we don't know when, at some point left Asia, left that city, and she ended up in Philippi. And now on a particular Saturday, she was by the river praying when Paul and the other guys showed up and Paul started telling her about Jesus, who is the son of David that you have read about he is the Messiah who is to come, and he died on a cross for your sins. And while she's listening to Paul, the Holy Spirit acted. 
He opened her heart. And the church in Europe began. And then another coincidence happened by God's hand. Start with verse 16. And we were going to the place of prayer. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain, much money, by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, notice Luke is with them, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. In this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So here's this demonized slave girl. She's making her owners a lot of money by fortune telling. She'd see Paul and the other guys every day. They're going off to wherever they're going off to pray. And she discerned by this demon, they are servants of the Most High God, and they are telling the way of salvation. And she, along with this demon, advertised them. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And finally, this really bugged Paul. And so after a few days, he drove the demon out of her. Which led to the God-ordained trouble that happened next. Read on. But when her owners saw that their hope of money-making gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Because Paul drove out a demon and it caused commotion and people got angry and jealous. Now, Luke doesn't say whether this slave girl 
got saved or not. But I think, having been freed from this evil spirit, we can assume God's grace went the whole way and caused her to be deeply thankful to Paul and to Silas and clung to them. And then they told her about the God of Christ Jesus and that she can be forgiven of her sins and assume that therefore she was added to Lydia and her family to the foundation of the church in Philippi. Now, of course, Luke's real main point here in that story was to show how Paul and Silas ended up thrown in jail, where then God grabs hold of another founding member of the church in the city of Philippi, the city jailer and his family. And this is the gospel. The God who saves in Jesus Christ is no respecter of persons. This new church plan, it starts with a sophisticated, rich, respectable businesswoman who also was religious. She had religious convictions about the God of the Bible. And then the gospel comes and the Holy Spirit comes and grabs hold of her and her family. And they were made members of Christ's body there in Philippi. And then a slave girl who was a piece of property to be used and to be abused. And she spent her life not seeking God like Lydia, but serving Satan. And she was most likely added to the church. And then a hardened military man who had to be rough and cruel with other human beings in order to do his prison job successfully. He was in the middle of the night while asleep, shockingly awakened by a big earthquake. It was strong enough to pop locks from metal doors. And just within a few hours, before the sun came up, he was turned into a Jesus-loving Christian, along with his family members. And that's the beginning of the church plant on the continent of Europe. Now they all had to, by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit, by the word, learn to love each other, accept one another. And all of these differing life, social circumstances here now in the beginning of the church in Philippi. The Lord works through his sovereign providence to bring together very different kinds of people. 
often from vastly different life experiences and backgrounds. And what they have in common, though, far, far exceeds any earthly bonds or cultures or hobbies. It is the eternal kingdom of God with the one and the only Savior who has been raised and ascended. That is the glue that Jesus creates by choosing extremely different persons, sinners, to come to Him. No wonder He said, even this gospel of the kingdom, it'll cause division within families between parents and children and siblings and friends because the significance of what happened in the jailer and in the slave girl and in Lydia far exceeded what they ever knew before in their life circumstances. They were brought into a new community. And so as God orchestrated the salvation of these differing persons, this is the other thing that was going on. It's right there in the text. These missionaries, their task was simple. Be faithful with the message. The message that says, as Paul will later say it, when he writes to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to anybody who believes, starting with the Jew and then all the rest. Their task was to be faithful to the message. Now, we're all broken, we're all finite, we're all still sinful as saints, and we often look, we all do it, it's easy to do. We look on the outward man, the outward circumstances of persons, and sometimes we just think, no way. That person can never be saved. It's just not going to happen. I know them too, too well. Oh, that other person? Yeah, she is really sweet, and she's, she's active in the community, and so giving. Surely she's going to come to Jesus and be saved. And then God acts, and He brings the persecutor of the church, the Christian-hating, self-righteous Paul. To be saved. Or that other person. And I'm actually thinking of a person in my extended family. No way. No way. And then he saved the person. And then the other person, she remains sweet, giving, 
and hard as a rock to the truth of the gospel that would save her soul. And we should learn from this to never, ever despise any person as unimportant when it comes to the gospel message that will save their souls. Our job as individual Christians, our job as churches as Christians, is not to figure out how to pretty up the gospel message to make it more palatable. Our job is to lovingly be clear about who God is in His holiness, about what sin is in all of us and in the persons we are talking to and about how God has sent His eternal Son in order to be slaughtered on a cross as a substitutionary atonement that was prefigured throughout the Old Testament where there He took the punishment, real God's holy wrath against sinners and to be clear about the judgment that is to come upon every single human being one day and then to be clear there's a way of escape of salvation of eternal joy which comes through his son Jesus Christ in him alone and it is offered freely by grace how can I get it? We'll see this more next week. By faith. Believe alone, apart from any works through Christ alone. And that message is to go indiscriminately to all kinds of persons, to kings, and to slaves, to the outcasts, and the high socialites, from the rich to the poor, to the well-read erudite, to the illiterate. That's our responsibility as Christians. As the Apostle Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 1, when he says, look at you people. <laughs> Look at your life circumstances. God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world in order to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not in order to bring to naught things that are. So that no human being might Boast in the presence of God. We are to remain faithful with the message. So now as we turn to this jail scene, we should also notice that Paul and Silas, they bore witness by their changed lives along with Proclaiming faithfully the message. What I mean is this. They knew that what just happened to them, and they're still 
either bleeding or all the blood still on them. It's going to need to be cleaned up later and it will happen. And that hurts. And they knew that what the city officials did, they knew that under Roman law, of which they were under, was not just immoral what happened to Paul and Silas. It was illegal what happened to them. But rather than complain, they sang. They sang to God. Christians joyfully sing. Even in that circumstance because they have a treasure laid up for eternity that far exceeds all the woes and all the troubles of this present life. Pick it up in verse 24. So the jailer, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stalks, those metal stalks around their ankles. About midnight, Paul and Silas had no shame. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was an earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he knows he's going to not just die, but be tortured to death if his prisoners escape. He was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. Saved his life. And the jailer called for lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So think about it. If Paul and Silas were not so gospel-oriented and so, therefore, in that context, other persons-centered, as soon as those doors were opened at midnight and bleeding, they're gone. We're out. Or maybe if you say, well, they didn't have enough time. Okay, the jailer's about ready to kill himself. Revenge. How roughly he treated us. Go ahead, you vermin. That's not what Paul did. Paul yelled out with a loud voice to save his life because he saw what he was about to do. Paul wanted him to hear the gospel before he plunged into eternity. Because he was gospel-centered, which made him indiscriminately centered on the salvation of persons out there, no matter 
what social circumstance they come from. He was dead set on seeing God's glory expand through gospel preaching and God saving. And we'll see more of that next week because then Paul unfolded the gospel to him at his house and thus to all the other members of his household and they all believed and were baptized. So, Satan and evil spirits, they're also behind human actions. They're behind the crowd. They're behind the magistrates. They're behind the sinful, money-grubbing slave owners. Satan and evil spirits hate the gospel. They are against the gospel. And they do show it by blatantly opposing the gospel. Sometimes by killing Christians or by having them thrown into jail. But they also show their hatred for the gospel by apparently, ostensibly, being on the side of the gospel. What I mean is this strange encounter with the slave girl. Because of that demon who is within her, she discerned who these people were and what they're doing. Just the demons understood who Jesus was. He'd shut them up. And so therefore, day after day, she publicly in the marketplace pointed to Paul and Silas and said, these men are servants of the Most High God and they are here telling you the way of salvation. What is not true about those words. Nothing. There is nothing that is not true about those words. Then why was Paul so irritated at it and he put a stop to it? Because it's not just the words. It's the vessels. It's the manner in which the words are delivered. You don't want a false religion of fortune-telling to represent Christ. And to represent the gospel. To represent the church. That would be to confuse people. Just because people affirm the name of Jesus doesn't mean that it is necessarily a good thing. It's not. 
If you're a pot-smoking drunk and you preach in the bars every night while drunk about Jesus, it's not helpful to the gospel. If you're a demonized fortune teller who says, these are the men, look at that, they're telling you the way of salvation, it's not helpful. It's not helpful if their lifestyles and their doctrine don't match the truth. It's not helpful if Jehovah Witnesses knock on your door and say to you, Jesus is the Savior. It's not helpful to souls out there who are un, not born again and don't know. It's not helpful, though they say those words. Because as you get into what they think about salvation in Jesus, it is utterly non-gospel. We are to represent Jesus with our words, with the clarity of the gospel, and our lives. Why do they sing after they've been beaten this day? And they sing songs of salvation to God. And that brings us back to where we began this sermon. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over planting churches. He's sovereign over saving souls. And he does it through the gospel being faithfully preached. In other words... God opens the hearts of some to see it as they hear it and to respond with the means that will save their soul. It's called faith. They believe. And then others reject the gospel because of the hardness of their hearts. Even though Lydia was a religious woman, read scripture, she did have a kind of fear of the Creator, of God, she was not saved. Then on this Saturday, she hears the message of Jesus, of salvation in Christ for the very first time. And it wasn't enough. Luke tells us, not that Lydia opened her heart. It's not what he says. He says, but the Lord, the Lord opened Lydia's heart, resulting in her paying attention to what Paul was saying about Jesus. Think about your own conversion. Isn't that true of you? 
Some of us, the distinction, what I'm going to say, is more clearer than others, particularly if you were converted as a younger person. But nevertheless, it's true. Isn't it true that there's a way you, you grew up or you're here or you live in the Western society and you, Jesus is not some foreign thing that you've never, never heard, but then something happened. You, you had a genuine interest in the gospel. And it became very personal to you. Why? Because the Lord, in mercy, opened your heart. Made you alive together with Christ. That's what happened to Lydia. It's what happened to her family. It's what happened to the jailer. It's what happened to his family. Now, if you say, well, it doesn't say it happened to all the others. I know. So just think with me for a moment. And this is how you should read Gospels. And it's how you should read the historical narrative of Acts. You ask questions like this. When Luke, he's a Christian. He's been in pastoral ministry, missionary ministry. Okay. He's got a theology. He's got the theology from Paul. And so you ask, as he writes this, like, 11 or 12 years after this incident, this whole book, but after this incident, why does he say that? Why does he, because those are Luke's words, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart. I think the answer is obvious. Because it's second nature to him. Because he understood the gospel. He knows how people are saved. Of course he doesn't say it in every instance throughout the book of Acts at every conversion because that would be monotonous. The redundancy of it. But it is assumed to Luke when people come to saving faith, the Lord opened their heart. He believed that as a matter of fact concerning the salvation of souls. And that's why here it just naturally flowed out of his pen. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart in order that she would pay attention to what Paul was saying about Jesus. And then there are others in this story that we read this morning who they could have come to faith in Christ. In other words, they could have been saved if they wanted to. But they did not come. Like the slave owners of the girl like the magistrates who, who, who trumped up some false charges, like the townspeople, the crowd that joined in attacking Paul in Silas, they did not come to faith because of the hardness of their hearts. 
They were what the Apostle Paul described in Ephesians 4, 18-19. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous. And that's you. And that's me. And that's Lydia. If we are left to ourselves without the personal saving mercy of God. And that's why we who have fled for refuge to our Savior, the Lord Jesus, that's why we worship. That's why we pray. That's why we give thanks. That's why we sing with joy. Even in the midst of a jail cell while bleeding. Even in the midst of financial problems. Of sickness. Of suffering. Of relational turmoil. That's why we who believe sing. Because we live in the reality of Ephesians 2, verse 4-7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved Lydia, and the jailer, and us who believe, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, He might show the infinite, immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why we sing. That's why we sing about the wonderful cross. If you don't sing as a professing Christian, change. Lydia sang. Paul sang. And you can be as bad of a singer as me. Just don't let me be up front with a microphone. 
Singing in church is not about a choir that's beautiful. It is about the congregation of God's people singing. So let's sing. Holy Father, you are good. Lord Jesus, your salvation is wonderful. In the midst of whatever jail cells or absolute freedom of high mountaintop experience this week or low canyons, you are greater than life. We appropriately give to you thanksgiving for our salvation and your constant keeping of us to the glory of your name. Amen. And